Well, good morning, church. Uh, please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5 as we continue our study of this exceptionally important uh, book of Scripture. Uh, if you're newer to the study of God's Word, you can find the book of Isaiah just by opening your Bible in the middle. You'll probably open to somewhere near Psalms and just uh, kind of flip uh, back towards the end a couple books and you'll find the book of Isaiah. And we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 5. And we're continuing our study of the causes of the downfall, the spiritual downfall of ancient Israel. But this morning, instead of beginning with an opening illustration, I want to begin with an opening apology. Uh, last week when I was explaining uh, why it displeased the Lord that greedy, covetous people were breaking the law and oppressing the poor by adding house to house and field to field, I briefly referenced the land laws from Leviticus chapter 25. And in my sermon prep, I had planned only to reference uh, Leviticus chapter 25 in a general way and not to get into any of the details, but during the message itself, I kind of uh, diverted from my notes and what I had prepared and made an off-the-cuff statement that the land was supposed to revert to its ancestral owners every seven years. That was a factual error, and so I want to apologize to the congregation. And I really appreciated one of our deacons came up to me after second service and brought it to my attention so I could correct it this morning. And the reason I want to correct it is because truth matters, and because truth matters, accuracy matters, especially accuracy from the pulpit. My sacred duty is to preach and teach God's word accurately so that you can live it accurately and understand it and apply it correctly. So let me just back up, rewind a little bit, and tell you what I should have said. Based on Leviticus chapter 25 and other portions of the Mosaic Law, every seventh year was a sabbatical year. That's the year when the fields were supposed to be left fallow. And then after seven cycles of seven years, the following year was what's called the year of Jubilee, when any land which had been leased had to be returned to the tribe, the clan, and the family to whom God had given it. And so I should have said every seventh cycle of seven years, so I definitely misspoke last week on that. I want to just briefly, though, help you understand why God gave these laws regarding this sabbatical year every seventh year and then the year of Jubilee after every seven cycles of seven years. By requiring the land to, let, to be left fallow every seven years, God prevented the soil in the promised land from being depleted and burned out by continual farming and this was important for God's care for successive generations. God didn't want the greed of one generation to create poverty and starvation for the following generations by depleting the soil, by never letting the ground lie fallow and therefore recover its nutrients. In other words, he didn't want one generation just using it all for themselves and not leaving the physical or natural resources for the coming generations. Also then, in regard to the year of Jubilee, every seventh cycle of seven years, by requiring the land to revert to the tribe, clan, and family to whom God had given the land every 50 years, the Lord prevented the mistakes or misfortunes of one generation from negatively affecting the next generation. So he did allow people to lease out their ancestral lands to others and this gave them the ability to convert land into cash if they had fallen into financial difficulties by either their own mistakes or by some misfortune. 
but by requiring that leased land to revert to the family to whom God had given it on the year of Jubilee, this prevented cycles of generational poverty. In other words, mistakes or misfortunes were, could only last one generation, and then the land, the full use of the land, the full rights of the land, had to revert back to the family to whom God had given it. And this prevented cycles of generational poverty. This is, by the way, why God was so displeased with what the greedy and the corrupt were doing in breaking those laws because they were defrauding the poor of their ancestral land and leaving orphans and widows destitute and robbing successive generations from any means to support themselves. That's why in chapter 5, verse 8, God says through the prophet Isaiah, woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room. The poor were being defrauded of their ancestral lands and squeezed out of the only means to support themselves, which was agriculture. As the great fourth century preacher Chrysostom famously put it, covetous men, if they could, would willingly take even the sun away from the poor. They would literally steal sunshine from the poor if they could. So what was happening and what was leading to the downfall of ancient Israel? Well, first of all, selfish, individualistic materialism was running rampant, and that led, as we saw last week, to two consequences. The first consequence was isolation. These corrupt and covetous oppressors would be isolated by their own greed. He says, you keep adding house to house and field to field so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. They were isolated by their own ill-gotten gains but the second consequence was desolation not just isolation but desolation in verses 9 through 10 it says in my ears the lord of hosts has sworn surely many houses shall become desolate even great and fine ones without occupants for 10 acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain in other words there would be a reverse tithe imposed on the land by God. A reverse tithe would be imposed by God and the land would only produce 10% of its normal harvest. Commenting on this verse, Herbert M. Wolf says that, quote, this reverse tithe is a hint that the covetous men involved were not the least bit interested in bringing contributions to the sanctuary. You see, if they had obeyed God's law given through Moses for the nation of Israel, they would have tithed 10% to the sanctuary and then God would have blessed them with 90% of the abundant harvest that he provided. But because they not only withheld that tithe and then even used their riches to oppress the poor, God imposed a reverse tithe on them. He ordered the land to withhold the 90%. In other words, if we love money more than God, if we love ill-gotten selfish gain more than we love others, the Lord has ways of causing us to reap what we've sown. And he is able to impose a reverse tithe, ordering the land to withhold that which had been withheld from God and from the poor. So there were consequences of individualistic materialism and those consequences were isolation 
and desolation. Isolation of the people and desolation of the land. That's where we left off last week, and so we're going to continue now in our study of the three causes of Israel's spiritual downfall. Three major causes of ancient Israel's spiritual downfall. First, individualistic materialism produced isolation. That's what we covered last week. This week, we're going to cover the fact that immersive merriment produced ignorance, and then next week, we'll look at the fact that inverted moralism produced iniquity. So again, the first major cause of ancient Israel's downfall was given in verses 8 through 11, individualistic materialism had produced isolation. And so now we're going to come to verses 11 through 17, where we're going to see the second major cause of Israel's downfall, which was that immersive merriment had produced ignorance. Look at verses 11 and 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine, but they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. To put it in our modern lingo, verses 11 and 12 basically says that the people were partying. And they were partying hard. Rising up early to consume strong drink and staying up late in the evening so that wine could inflame them with an implication of sexual immorality. They were partying, boozing it up and jamming out to music from early in the morning until late at night. In other words, they had immersed themselves in a party culture. They had immersed themselves day after day in a party culture which valued merriment above everything else. It valued entertainment above anything else. They were so busy having fun that verse 12 says, they did not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor did they even consider the work of his hands. They were simply too busy having fun to have any time for God. They were so focused on entertainment, they had no time and no desire to even think about spiritual things. That, sadly, that's a description not just of the downfall of ancient Israel, but the downfall of our own culture as well, isn't it? We live in an entertainment-driven culture where movies, television, social media, gaming, sports, and concerts consume so much of our time and attention that most people rarely think about God or the work of his hands. They're simply too busy being entertained to even think about their creator. We're so distracted by our screens, our activities, and our entertainment that God gets only the leftover scraps of our time and our attention. And with many people, he gets nothing at all. It's immersive merriment, and it squeezes God out of our lives. If you go around and just kind of do that man on the street microphone thing, go around and ask people if they can name the words of popular songs. They can. 
Ask them to quote word for word the dialogue from their favorite movie. They can. Ask them to give details of of the life stories and even of the interest of their favorite pop stars or sports figures or entertainment celebrities, and they can tell you things about them that will blow your mind. How do you even know this about them? Those same, same people can't even quote a single Bible verse, can't even name the books of the Bible, much less have ever read them, and they know absolutely nothing about their creator. You see, immersive merriment has produced spiritual apathy. And spiritual apathy has created spiritual ignorance. And spiritual ignorance leads to catastrophe. Immersive merriment produces spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy produces spiritual ignorance and spiritual ignorance leads to consequences. And that's exactly what Isaiah verse 13 says. For ancient Israel, the consequences of this immersive merriment which produced ignorance was gonna be exile. Verse 13, therefore, Because of this immersive merriment which has created this ignorance of God, therefore, for that reason, my people go into exile. Well, what was the cause of this exile? He says they go into exile for their lack of knowledge, because of their ignorance, because they lacked the knowledge of God. They don't know him. They don't know his word. They don't know his character. They don't know how they're supposed to live. They are truly spiritually ignorant. They just go through life partying their way right off a cliff. My people go into exile because of their lack of knowledge. Immersive merriment had produced ignorance. Consequences then are going to roll. The second part of verse 13 says that famine was going to come. Their honorable men are famished, and their multitude is parched with thirst. That reverse tithe in which God is going to command the land to withhold 90% of the harvest was going to create famine. And that famine was going to affect the lowest to the highest. Their honorable men will be famished. They'll go hungry and the multitude will be parched with thirst. Just a short time ago, they'd been boozing it up and feasting and now they'll have nothing. Ultimate consequence, verse 14 says, is death. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into it, into the mouth of Sheol. This is a word picture. Have you ever watched those nature shows and you know, some snake will you know, capture this prey and you're like, you know, the snake is this big around and the prey is this big around. You're like, how is the snake gonna eat something so big? And then you see the snake unhinges its jaw and opens its mouth wide and then enlarges its throat and consumes and swallows the prey. That's how Sheol will consume the wicked. They used to consume, now they will be consumed. 
Jerusalem splendor, her multitude, all of that din of revelry, all the sound of the parting, all of that is going to sink down into the gaping mouth of Sheol, of death and hell. The party's going to be over. They used to have lavish feasts, now they'll have nothing to eat or drink. They used to entertain themselves with music, but now Jerusalem's revelry will be silenced. They used to open wide their mouths and widen their throats so they could pour booze down it. Now death is gonna open its mouth and widen its throat and pour them down it. See, there's a lesson here, and the lesson is this. Those with an insatiable appetite for sin will soon find out that death has a bigger appetite than they do. Derek Kidner puts it this way, quote, the judgment of the sensualists will be to lose the one thing they have lived for and to find themselves the object of an even more insatiable appetite than their own. They had an insatiable appetite for entertainment. Death has an even more insatiable appetite. They had been so busy partying that they forgot God, they forgot the works of his hands, and they descended into spiritual ignorance, into spiritual darkness, and now the party is going to be brought to an end. Verses 15 through 17. So the common man will be humbled, the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud also will be abased, but the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness then the lambs will graze as in their pasture and strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy the pride of man will be humbled and God's going to be exalted in judgment or by judgment you know that phrase talking about the humbling of man and the exaltation of God is the fourth time that this very similar phrase using very similar terminology has been used in the book of Isaiah. Flip back to chapter two, verses nine through 10, where it appears the first time. It says, the common man has been humbled, the man of importance has been abased, but do not forgive them. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The pride of man will be humbled and God's splendor will be exalted. The second time appears in chapter two, verse 11, the next verse. The proud look of man will be abased. The loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Chapter two, verse 17. Again, the pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then in our verses, chapter five, verse 15 and 16, the common man will be humbled, the man of importance abased, the eyes of the proud also will be abased, but the Lord of hosts will be exalted and he will be exalted in judgment. The situation described here is both tragic and pathetic. They're spiritually ignorant, but they're too proud to realize it. Romans 1 describes this problem this way. Professing to be wise, they became fools. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. 
spiritually ignorant, but too proud to realize it. So that's why there's gonna be a great humbling. A humbling of the pride of man and an exaltation of the Lord. So Isaiah chapter five, verses 11 through 17 is a powerful warning, and it is a powerful warning against the dangers of spiritual stupidity. What is spiritual stupidity? Well, spiritual stupidity is the ignorance of God's truth which comes from, from an obsessive indulgence of entertainment which squeezes God out of our lives. That's spiritual stupidity. When you are so consumed with frivolous, meaningless temporary things that you don't have the time, the energy, or the desire to think about God, to read his word, and to put what he has said is wise into practice. Immersive merriment had led to spiritual ignorance. We need to pause and hear the anguish in Isaiah's voice when he says in verse 13, my people are going into exile because of their lack of knowledge. They just wouldn't pay attention. This is ignorance that is not because God had withheld it, but because they had ignored it. God had given them opportunity to know the truth. They just were too busy. Just too busy. How many people do you know that, oh, you know, I'll, I'll go to church next week. Maybe, maybe, maybe next month. I'm so busy. I don't have time to hear the word of the Lord. I don't have time to worship. I don't have time to think about God. Immersive merriment creates ignorance so what's the application for us well don't allow entertainment to produce ignorance don't allow immersive merriment to produce spiritual ignorance in your life or in the lives of your children get yourself and your kids off of screens and into the word of God get them out of endless activities and into church put God first and the things of God first. Now I wanna make sure you don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that entertainment is wrong. Entertainment in moderation is not wrong. But if it pushes God out of your life, it's become an idol. If it takes a higher priority in your life than God, then it has become an idol. And it doesn't matter what it is. It's not just that, you know, it's not just that if you're doing something bad, it, it can push God out of your life. Some really good things can push God out of your life. Idolatry, which is putting anyone or anything above God, idolatry always has horrible consequences. And those consequences are gonna come whether you're worshiping Baal or football. <laughs> whether you're sacrificing your kids on the altar of Molech or the altar of movies especially unscreened movies. Whether you're a devotee of Hermes or a devotee of Hollywood, it doesn't matter what your idol is, anything that you put before God is going to destroy you. 
again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that sports are wrong or that movies are wrong or that music is wrong or that other forms of entertainment are wrong. And my position on that's gonna be pretty obvious to anyone who's seen me cheering probably a little too emotionally uh, for my kids as they play their basketball games and or cheering again maybe a little too emotionally uh, at, as I watch the remainder of the Super Bowl after our evening services tonight. I enjoy those things and this passage is for me too. I need to make sure I don't allow entertainment to eclipse the main thing. Colossians 1 says that Christ is to have first place in everything. Across America though, God isn't first. The number of people who show up for a movie, a sporting event, and other forms of entertainment absolutely dwarfs the number who show up to worship. And he's the one who made it all. The game tonight is going to be played on grass that God made. It's going to be played with bodies God has created and given. They'll be breathing the air he made and using the talents he provided. It's not right to worship the creation above the creator. We're gonna see this played out before our eyes in just a couple months when the weather warms up. Right to our east, our neighbors are there to the east are all those soccer fields. And when the weather warms up, there will be thousands of people. When you drive into church and you look across those fields, you will see thousands of people on Sunday mornings gathered for worship, the worship of entertainment. Soccer is a great thing. But when Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you're at a soccer field and not in church, something has gone horribly wrong. Americans prioritize entertainment over God and they are diligently teaching their children to do the same. How many of the thousands of people on those soccer fields tell their children that God is more important than soccer? Probably many of them do. But how many of them show their kids that soccer is more important than God? How many dads show their kids that fishing is more important than God? How many mothers show their kids that social media is more important than God? That's what I'm warning against. Don't allow entertainment to become a higher priority in your life. Don't allow it to take so much of your time, your money, and your energy, and your plans that God, the gospel, and the Great Commission are squeezed into the corners of your life. God won't dwell in the corner of your life. He will humble that which is proud so that he will be exalted. Rest and relaxation isn't wrong in moderation. Remember, there was a time in the life of the ministry of Christ where they had just been ministering and ministering and ministering and Jesus says to the disciples, come away and rest for a while. Rest is good. Relaxation is good in moderation. But, you know, if a soldier who's in a war leaves for rest and relaxation, which he needs, but if he doesn't go back to the front line, he's a deserter. When rest and relaxation becomes not a respite from your duties, 
but the pursuit of your life, you are nothing more than a deserter. There's a spiritual war going on. Souls are at stake. How dare we spend our lives in rest and relaxation while people are perishing? So enjoy rest and relaxation, but don't worship it. Don't let it consume you. Consume entertainment. Don't let entertainment consume you. Don't allow immersive merriment to produce spiritual ignorance or apathy in your life. Well, we've seen so far that just as individualistic materialism produced isolation and immersive merriment produced ignorance in ancient Israel, we too in our day and our culture have these corrosive influences at work. We too are isolated at times by our pursuit of wealth and we too lack knowledge at times because our obsession with entertainment has prevented us from diligently studying the word of God, from knowing him, from prayer, from walking with him, from worship. Let's avoid these two major causes of spiritual downfall. Well, there's a third major cause of ancient Israel's downfall, and it is this third one that strikes to the heart of what we're seeing in our own society, and that is that inverted moralism produced iniquity. Inverted moralism produced iniquity. Look at chapter 5, verses 18 through 23. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Inverted moralism produced Iniquity. I want you to look at verse 18 and notice in verse 18 that Isaiah says that the people were dragging iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. What does this mean? What is he portraying here? Well, he's using a picture that they would immediately resonate with and that is the picture of an ox strapped to a cart. And this is the picture of a cart which is piled with refuse, with manure. And the people had bound themselves to this cart of sin, this cart of iniquity, this cart of refuse, the, the moral manure of society. They had bound themselves to that cart with the cords of falsehoods, heresies, false teaching, false ideologies false doctrine. They had strapped themselves through lies to sin. They were yoked to the burden of sin. The problem was they 
weren't trying to get out. They weren't trying to get free from this cart of sin. No, no, no. They were gladly pulling that cart of manure throughout society and spreading it everywhere. They're not only bound to sin, they're pulling it, moving it forward, helping it gather momentum. You see, when an ox is bound to the cart, he is on the one hand enslaved to the cart, but on the other hand, it is his strength which gives the cart its momentum. He propels the cart forward. He gives it momentum. Without the ox, the cart is stationary. But Isaiah laments the people were dragging iniquity with the cords of falsehood. They were dragging sin with cart ropes. In other words, they're both slaves to sin and promoters of sin. They were, as 2 Timothy 3.13 puts it, both deceiving and being deceived. Both bound to sin and driving sin forward promoting it 2 Timothy 3.13 says evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived they'll promote sin and they'll be deceived by sin and that's going to go from bad to worse and that's what we see happening verse 19 says they were saying in response to Isaiah's warning they were saying let him that is God make speed let him hasten his work so that we can see it we're not going to believe it unless we actually see it let the purpose of the Holy One draw near and come to pass that we may know it they are mocking the prophet Isaiah and the picture here is just tragic and shocking they're enslaved to sin they're bound to it like a beast of burden is bound to a cart Instead of freeing themselves through repentance, they begun willingly pulling the cart of sin and wickedness and spreading the refuse of sin throughout society. And so God sends them, Isaiah, to warn them, you've hitched yourself to the wrong cart. You're hauling around, not a cart of righteousness and of justice, but of wickedness. You've got to unstrap yourself from that cart of sin and strap yourself to a cart of righteousness. And if you don't, judgment is coming. But they refuse. They reject that warning. And they lean into their sin all the more. They start pulling even harder to move that cart of sin along. And so wickedness gathers more and more speed and momentum like an ox they are straining with all their might to move sin forward to make it legal, to make it popular, to make it acceptable, to make it noble. We're gonna pull this cart and we're gonna gain so much momentum it can't be stopped. And so sin gathers momentum like a cart which is careening madly out of control down a hill right towards a cliff. And Isaiah is telling them, stop! Before it's too late. How do they respond? Well, with mockery. God's not going to catch up to us. Judgment isn't going to overtake us. We're moving so far, so fast. We're so modern and so progressive that this whole judgment thing will never catch us. Let God speed up. 
Let him move a little faster. We'll believe it when we see it. But we have left God and judgment in the dust of history. That was what they were saying to Isaiah. We're advancing so far so fast. We left those old-fashioned, out-of-date, archaic ideas of sin and judgment in the past. So get out of the dark ages, Isaiah. Get on the right side of history. We don't believe in that old-fashioned sin and judgment thing anymore. Does that sound familiar? Don't we hear the same response of mockery whenever we warn our society that wickedness is gathering momentum like a cart which is craning out of control towards a cliff? That's how they respond. And the New Testament tells us that's how it's going to be all the way up to the last days. 2 Peter 3.3 says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. But when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. From Old Testament to New and all the way up to the last days, there's a tragedy which plays out. People rush headlong towards judgment, pulling like an ox a cart of iniquity. And they're careening towards destruction. And so God sends messengers to warn them, stop, turn back, repent, cut your ties with this iniquity and be free. And they respond, let God try to catch up. Try to catch up, Christians. Get on the right side of history, they tell us. You know when someone tells you to get on the right side of history, you know what you should tell them? I plead with you to get on the right side of the future because there is a day coming in which judgment will catch up to you. God warns people of coming judgment, but he is patient because he doesn't want any to perish but all to come to repentance. And the wicked respond to that patience with sarcasm. They mock the very idea of a coming judgment. They say, you've been saying that judgment is coming for centuries and look, nothing has happened. And so nothing will happen. This whole judgment is coming thing is a joke and we don't believe it anymore. They tragically mistake God's patience as evidence that judgment is pretend. They mistake patience, God's patience, as if God was pretending that he will judge. They don't believe it's gonna actually happen. So they mockingly respond to the warnings, saying, let God make speed, let him hasten. But what God says is, that's actually exactly what I'm gonna do. 
I'm going to make speed and I'm going to hasten in judgment. That phrase there in verse 19, when they say, let him make speed, let him hasten. The way that phrase sounds in Hebrew is very similar to a phrase that's found down in verse 26. When God says, I will lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth and behold, it will come with speed swiftly. They were mocking Isaiah saying, Isaiah, you keep saying this judgment is coming. It's, it never gets here. Apparently, we're moving so fast, judgment's left in the dust. Let God speed up if he's real. Let God speed up if judgment is actually coming. And God says, I will speed up. I will whistle. I will raise a standard. And Assyria will come with speed swiftly. And he uses the exact phrase that they had said to Isaiah. This similar phrase appears again in chapter 8. Verses one through four, it says, then the Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. Using again, similar terminology. In fact, that phrase sounds almost identical to what the people had mockingly said to Isaiah in chapter five, verse 19. It goes on in verse two, I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Zebarachiah. So I approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hash Baz. And that name is this same phrase. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. In other words, Isaiah, name your son by this mocking phrase that they had said because that's going to be a warning to them of judgment. Verse four, for before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. They said, let judgment try to catch us. Let God speed up, let him move swiftly. And God says, I'm gonna signal to a nation who will come so quickly and so swiftly, you will not escape. Maher shalal hash baz, swift and speedy. The judgment is coming. Well, that brings us to verse 20, which I think is one of the most important verses in the Bible for understanding the main challenge of our times, which is inverted moralism. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We're gonna talk about that next week. We're gonna show you how in verse 30, they've swapped out light for darkness and so God says, I'm gonna give you what you swapped for. What you traded for, you will get. You trade the truth of God for a lie, you'll get deception. You trade Light for darkness and you will get darkness. Verse 30 is gonna say, if one looks to the land, behold, there's darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. You called good evil, evil good. You traded darkness for light and so you're gonna get darkness. Inverted moralism produces iniquity and iniquity results in judgment. Well, is there any hope? We're gonna talk about next week how God pronounces judgment and 
all of these series of judgments are giving and given and after each series of judgments it says the anger of the Lord is not yet assuaged and his hand of judgment is still stretched out and that phrase is going to appear four times until finally in chapter 10 it's going to say there will come a time when God's anger will be assuaged how will it be assuaged chapter 11 is going to say there's coming a savior A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then verse 12 says that because of the salvation that the Messiah is going to bring, he says, and here's the hope, chapter 12, verse 1, then you will say to me on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. After the doom and the gloom of the judgments that are pronounced in chapters 5 through 9, there comes beginning in in chapter 10 and moving into the promise of the coming Messiah in chapter 11, and then this great resounding joyous anthem of praise in chapter 12. There is hope, and that hope is in Christ, the coming Messiah. He will come to save his people from their sins. My question for you as we close for this morning is, can you say what's said there in chapter 12? Can you say, I will give thanks to the Lord for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. Do you know the Savior? Do you know the one prophesied 2,700 years ago who came, died on a cross for your sins, was pierced for your transgressions as Isaiah 53 is going to prophesy, was wounded for your iniquities, was buried, rose again, so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life. Have you given your life to him? Lord, I pray there would be no one who would harden their heart. Lord, no one who would turn away no one who would allow the merriment of a fallen world to so distract them that they plunge off the cliff into eternal destruction having never paid attention to you, to the warnings you've given and to the hope that you offer to us in Christ. Lord, may each heart repent of sin and trust you as their Lord and Savior so that those cords of falsehood could be cut through by the sword of your word and they could be free to then turn from the path of destruction and follow you into the joys of eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.